The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. Harry Malm is the co-founder and CEO at Freezy, a scale-up based out of London who combine natural language techniques with AI and deep learning to optimize marketing copy across all digital channels. They do this in over 20 languages for global blue chip clients like eBay, Virgin Atlantic, and Superdry. Now they're funded by Albion VC, Galvanize Capital, and Next15 Communications. And Frazee's solution is truly revolutionary and the proof, as they say, is in the pudding because their clients are achieving tangible return on investment. Parry is a self-described digital anarchist, so I'm expecting some thought-provoking and maybe controversial ideas today. So, uh, Parry, uh, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thanks, Gary. Let's give her. Now, I'd love to go back to the beginning of your journey with Frazy. So when you launched the business, what were your hopes and aspirations? I mean, I think, you know, looking back, I don't know if I was really one for hopes and dreams and stuff like that. I mean, I basically started Frazy because I, I didn't want to have a boss and I wasn't that good at keeping jobs. So from an aspiration standpoint, I wanted to do something on my own. It's I'm sort of a third generation entrepreneur. My grandfather formed a wheat pool on the plains of Canada. And my dad formed his own company when I was a boy. So I guess it's in my blood, really, not being able to take orders very well. But like the specific idea of Frazy stemmed from experiences that, that I had and a problem that I noticed when I was working as a, a brand side marketer where I came up, you know, right when things like email and social media were just taking off, like in the sort of early 2000s. And at the time, it was this newfangled thing. You could, you could send emails for a couple of cents ago, which was a lot cheaper than putting a stamp on stuff. And I thought, ah, this is, this is great. And of course, you know, things have moved on since then. And it's uh, the sort of de facto commodity of the, of the marketing value chain now. But as my career progressed and these technologies became more pervasive in the marketing ecosystem, there were loads and loads of companies which cropped up that, that focused on optimizing the operational efficiency of a marketing campaign. You know, you could click a button and a million messages would go out to a million people. But what if that message sucked? See, I come from a weird background where I've got, you know, some, some language training. I've always been, you know, a reasonably good writer, but I've also got a technical background in computer science and statistics and so forth. And so I always believed when I was brand side that the message was absolute king. And, and, and this is a concept that seemed to have gotten lost on a whole entire generation of marketers where we were so focused on the operations. We were so focused on the spreadsheets that we forgot that your message matters more than anything. If your message sucks, then you're, then you're just farting in the wind. None of it makes a difference. So that's when the light bulb moment came on, the moment of clarity, if you will. And I thought, what if we applied the same level of scientific rigor to the message 
that we do to every other part of the marketing stack. And from that belief, Frazy was born. Well, I've had enough for now messages hitting my inbox to be able to relate exactly to the point you're making there. So the value proposition makes sense. Now, right from the start, Frazy has placed ethics front and center in terms of the way you run the business, the solutions you offer, and the projects you work on. I really love your ethical stance, even turning away clients and projects which you feel breach your moral guidelines. What life experiences have shaped your moral compass and what exactly are the ethical standards that you've implemented at Frazy? I mean, as far as life experience goes, you know, my, my coming up was always very focused on doing the right thing when no one's looking. You know, my um, dad, I mentioned, is a small, small businessman. He comes from, from farmer stock. So, you know, a man's word is his bond. And you say what you mean and you mean what you say and you follow the golden rule and so forth. And my mom was a school teacher. So I certainly had an understanding of, of what's appropriate and what's not. So for a long time, I did the exact opposite. And I think by walking that line, I sort of learned that it's very easy to go down certain paths. So like I was in business school and we, we did all of these case studies and stuff, which were all about, you know, the right choices to make in business and so forth. And I was the guy who was calling bullshit going like, well, maybe it's the right choice for the business's bottom line, but what about everybody else who it affects. So I guess like, I don't know if it's a innate belief system or if it's just a high horse, which I sit on once in a while, but it just is what it is really. But why I think it matters for a company like Frazy is for years and years, you know, we've been so focused on bottom lines that, that people have taken spurious actions. And this is nothing new. You think about the double glazing salesmen of years past, right? Where there have been spurious tactics in business, which, which ruin markets, which ruin perceptions of entire product lines. Like double glazing, for example, is a fantastic product. Every house in the world should have double glazing windows. But in the UK, like not that many do because they've been sold so poorly and the entire product line has gotten a bad rap. So it's my belief that marketing technology is facing a similar existential crisis where if we only look at the bottom line and don't think about the sort of externalities, the unintended consequences of more efficient, more effective marketing, then people are going to lose trust in it. And as an entire industry, it's going to suffer. So that's why, you know, a couple of years ago, I personally wrote and launched Frazy's AI ethics policy and we, we stand by it. I mean, just, I think, two or three weeks ago, we had a company in the US who, as one of their major product lines, sells guns and ammo and stuff like that. And we basically said, well, our policy is this. If you want to use our tech to sell any of that stuff, we'll consider it a material breach. And they said, oh, but that's not fair. And we're like, well... Things are the way they are, and they wound up going away. So while individual sales reps may have been bummed out because they won't get that deal on their books, I'm actually quite happy because I don't want to work with those companies. And how does this inform your hiring decisions? The, how do you evaluate candidates on their ethical alignment? We don't because our ethics policy is front and center on our website. We reference it in our job ads, stuff like that. 
So people who apply for the jobs don't apply in the first place if they're sort of of a different mindset. So it's, I don't believe that like ethics is something you can necessarily test because it's, I mean, I've taken ethics courses, I've taken philosophy courses, and, and, and it's not very hard to answer questions correctly according to the, the theory and ideology of the person to whom you're answering. So instead, you know, like ethics may form guidelines, but it's ultimately somebody's actions which determine whether or not they're following that course of action or not. So generally, there's a lot of self-filtering. And then if people don't match up based upon their, their actions early in their tenure at Frazy, they, they generally don't last, be it our decision or theirs. Okay, that's interesting. Now, you raised a Series A led by Albion VC. A lot of tech entrepreneurs I speak to have, shall we say, mixed views on the uh, European VC community. I'd love to hear your views and your experiences of engaging with VCs. Well, if I think back, when we first started Frazy, we were first looking at raising. I did the, the VC roadshow where I slept around Mayfair and Soho and all those fancy places. And I went, you know, to meet all the usual suspects. I'm not going to name names, but basically a bunch of uh, upper middle class white guys in cheap suits. And I met loads of them, right? And all of them gave me all sorts of free advice, like going, your idea is too narrow. The market's too small. It's going to be technologically infeasible. It'll never work. You should do that instead. I had one guy, I went to a, a large bank's accelerator and pitched them. It was being funded by, I think it was Techstars, but it might be wrong, and sat down and gave him the pitch. And the guy said to me, he said, well, why don't you just rebrand yourselves as fintech? Because then you could raise a lot more more money. And I'm like, you are fucking drunk. So I entered into Frazy with a neutral perception of VCs. And as Frazy went on further, the perception became somewhat negative. Because what we were trying to do with Frazy was effectively something that was new, that didn't exist in the marketplace. But every VC who I met said, well, instead of doing that, why don't you do this? And this was always a minor iteration of something that was, was always done. So for all the talk that VCs do about them backing innovators, what they're actually doing is backing incrementers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but why don't they just say it? Right now, if you go to any VC website, their website will say, we're not a normal VC. And I get emails from VCs on a weekly basis, ones who I met, ones who I haven't met. And they go, we're not a normal VC. But if every VC is not a normal VC, then by virtue of not being normal, they're all normal. Right? <laughs> I'm really pleased that we raised our Series A with Albion because the structure of their fund is different from VCs, right? They're a venture capital trust, meaning it's effectively an evergreen fund. So what they're looking is for a sustained growth model, not just a quick growth to an exit, which is where most VCs lie. For my sort of belief in businesses and my, my vision of what Frazy is going to be, I don't want to build Frazy for a 7x at a crazy, stupid valuation so a bunch of VCs can get rich. I want to build Frazy so we create a bunch of awesome jobs, so we like, make a difference in the world and that we can create value for people and businesses. And you can't do that if you're constantly focused on bending over to keep your VCs happy. You touched upon your 
aspirations, your vision for the future. Let's explore that a, li- a little more. How do you see Frazee evolving over the next two to three years? Well, over the next two or three years, I mean, we're going on a hiring binge right now. We've expanded territorially through the COVID crisis. Our headcount in the U.S. has uh, increased by an order of magnitude, I think by about 10x since COVID hit, and we expect to keep on on hiring out there. So I think the next two or three years, from a commercial standpoint, is going to be about you know a reasonably priced gross. You know, much much like many of the listeners of this podcast, I track things like CAC ratios and whatnot, and I think the targets that most people set themselves are not very ambitious targets. Why should you spend more than a dollar to get a dollar's worth of business? It doesn't make sense to me. So we're we're sort of spending and acquiring customers at sustainable levels that that mean that we don't need to raise crazy amounts of money and dilute super cool people like me and my co-founders and the angel investors and employee option holders. So that's from a commercial standpoint. From a product standpoint, we're expanding out the product team massively and we're doing some really cool stuff where we we started Frazy in the wide, exciting world of email subject lines. Now, while a lot of VCs said, you got to think bigger, you got to think about this and that and the other, they were all wrong, right? Because we basically conquered a very fractured, a very fragmented market that nobody else was paying attention to because they deemed it too small and meaningless and whatnot. And we built a multi-million pound business off of this idea that was never going to work. So I, I do take some pride in that fact. But now that we've nailed that and we are far and away the market leaders in that market, we're we're expanding out rapidly. So we're we're going further, deeper into the email chain. We're going across message types into push messages, Facebook ads, things like that. And I expect this trend to carry on. We've just hired up some awesome people in the product team to really kind of drive it forward and professionalize our operations. And we're doing all of this having only raised, I think, about 6 million quid with a very low appetite to raise more because we got customers who pay us money, so we don't need to raise a bunch of money. So you're not going to uh, go on a a tour of the States meeting people like Sequoia and all the big VCs in Silicon Valley and Boston, New York. You, you don't see the need to do that to match up to your North American expansion plans. They can come and find me. <laughs> There's not anything inherently bad about how many companies run themselves, right? Where they go and they raise more money, they raise more money, and they view a private valuation from a point of ego or something, right? Like I saw a thing about there is a, a company in the UK that just got valued at 2.2 billion from a private VC round. And the guy was quoted in TechCrunch as saying, that wasn't the the highest value in, in Europe this year. That's annoying. <laughs> so that's fine. I mean, if that's if that sort of paper value is what drives some people, I can't judge them. That's totally cool. With me, it's slightly different where I don't really care what our valuation is. It doesn't really matter. It's just a, it's just a number that's kind of made up by a bunch of uh, spreadsheet wonks, right? What ultimately matters is what you can do to capitalize that value for founders, uh, employee option holders, and investors. And a, a constantly increasing valuation with no real view to liquidity just seems rather illogical to me. 
So you're focused on different uh, different goals, different metrics. That's great to hear because I think TechCrunch has uh, <laughs> a lot to answer for in terms of what people and entrepreneurs and VCs tend to tend to celebrate and make a big song and dance about. Now, during your journey as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you've made many mistakes and learned many invaluable lessons. What are some of the key lessons from Frazee's first five years? I mean, I don't think I've made any mistakes, to be honest. So I can't really... <laughs> I love your humility. <laughs> One thing I've learned about being the chief exec is that my role has changed as the years have gone on. So when when Frazee started, I was our our CFO. I was our chief revenue officer. I was, you know, our marketing guy. I was our product guy. Like, I kind of did it all. And that's because, you know, like... I guess I'm versatile. And to be honest, like stuff just needed to get done, right? So that was totally cool. But then as, as the company grew, I didn't personally expand as quickly as the company did. So I was still getting my hands dirty and lots of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been. And I'm still guilty of it now, to be honest. So what I've really focused on in, in the last while is making sure that I've got like a killer management squad at the top. and then set them guidelines, set them boundaries, and then get that fuck out of there and let them work towards them. If I'm honest, it's something that I psychologically struggle with because I like knowing what's going on. I like being involved. You know, I just like doing stuff. I like being busy. But actually what's best for the company now is me not being busy. It's sort of a psychological paradox, right? Where my brain is telling me that I should be really busy. I should be doing lots of stuff, but actually the company is better when I'm doing less stuff, if that makes sense. And then I can be spending time on podcasts like this and thinking about you know what's next for, for Frazee and so forth. But I've always been a bit of a doer. So it's sort of, you know, I guess it's, it's not really a conscious mistake I've made, but it's a, a realization that I wish I had had a lot earlier in the journey. How about... COVID, the pandemic, the the work from home situation. Any lessons you've learned from that experience and any changes in your outlook on life or your outlook on business as a result of the past three quarters? Well, when COVID first hit, like many people, we hit the panic button and we ran all sorts of different financial scenarios going, what if this happened? What if that happened? And we we looked at our peer companies and they were letting go a bunch of people. They were using COVID as an excuse to get rid of the people who they probably shouldn't have hired in the first place and to downsize and reduce costs and so forth. But this is my third downturn of my working career. Now, of course, this one is is more severe than the dot-com bust and the banking crash and so forth. But it's still, you know, you, you sort of learn that the, the outturn of every crisis like this is there are winners and there are losers. And the winners are all classified as brands that can adapt very quickly to the, to the new normal and don't have a huge amount of cost or institutional inertia that prevent them from moving forward. So we're actually quite fortunate where we we did a dry run of going fully remote the week before lock or two weeks before lockdown hit. And we actually had a few staff who were still on desktops. And my my FD 
lady called Barbara. She's been with us about four four years. She's got like a crystal ball. She said, listen, Perry, we got to get everybody laptops because if this coronavirus thing goes crazy, we're all going to be working from from home. And I'm like, ah, you're crazy, but fine. <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's get them. So we are actually set up two weeks out for everybody to be, to be ready to be from home. So we actually shut down the office a week before the government mandated it. We did have some churn when COVID first hit from folks who are in the travel market. And there's no, like, I mean, if their bookings go from full to empty, you know, of course they're going to turn out. But actually since then, we've had a pretty good go. We've had some pretty sustained growth since coronavirus hit. And we didn't let go anyone. We actually asked each employee in, in the firm to take a voluntary salary haircut for three months, which they all did. They all volunteered. There were no opt-outs. And then we were actually doing so well after three months, we, we started paying it back. And we're, we're paying it back with interest over a 12-month period. So I think that that's a real testament to the, to the team for doing something for the collective good, but also to the impact that Frazee can have in this market where we can now afford to pay our team back with interest. Brilliant. Now, I know you're a big fan of a certain TV cartoon show. So tell me about the Simpsons and their influence on Freezy. <laughs> yeah, so the Simpsons came out when I was in the sixth grade. I think I was about 12. And uh, when it first came out, people were saying, oh, it's going to ruin children. And like it was viewed as risque, like Bart Simpson saying, eat my shorts was risque. <laughs> and like, like there's all sorts of conversations about it. Now, the Simpsons, compare it to like other cartoons like like Rick and Morty or or and it's downright tame right which is crazy but we're going back 30 odd years right so much like many kids who 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 grew up um and came of age in the 90s when you came home from school in Canada at least the Simpsons was on the CBC at five o'clock and at 5 30 and they were reruns from seasons two to eight which are the best seasons so I would watch it damn near every day and after a couple of years, I think I had seen every episode, you know, five times or something. So I'm a bit of a Simpsonsophile. I don't really watch it much these days because it sort of lost its way a bit. So we started Frazy, and my first hire was um, this fellow called Jasper, who's our VP of product now, who had a similar experience growing up, albeit in Adelaide, Australia, where after school, he'd go home each day and watch The Simpsons and stuff. So we sort of bonded and we created this like weird little language where we would make random references to the Simpsons that no one else would get, but we'd get them. So we had built our product stack, which is effectively a series of different microservices, which all interact through a sort of centralized monolith UI, if that makes sense. And we are talking about them in their different names. We are talking about our performance engine. We are talking about you know our language generation engine. We are talking about our middleware and we're using all sorts of this like nomenclature that just sort of, it made it, it was very jargony, which made it inaccessible to non-technicians, which meant that, you know, we'd talk about stuff and and half the team wouldn't know what, what we were talking about, which didn't make sense. So we decided to start naming things. The naming taxonomy, which we picked, were Simpsons characters. And it's actually, it's, it's grown massively. So we've got, our predictive engine is now known as Frink because... Professor Frank is the smart scientist who does all the crazy stuff. We've got our testing unit is called Camp Krusty because there's <laughs> an episode of The Simpsons where they go to Camp Krusty and like everything looks good on the outside, but it's a little bit broken on the inside. So that's why it's, it's, a, 
environment for QA. We call it Camp Krusty. We've got loads more. I can never think of them off the top of my head. Oh yeah, my, my personal favorite is our API system, which we built to plug into third parties uh, who don't always, um, whose technologies don't always play nicely. So we call that one Flanders. <laughs> because even though you may not like your neighbor, you're going to be nice to him and lend him your lawnmower if you ever ask for it. Heidly ho. Then we <laughs> needed to upgrade the underlying technology in Flanders. So we called it Rod and Todd, which are Flanders' kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's the son of Flanders. That is a great taxonomy. I love it. Parry, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. I might just try Frazee's solution to help with the copywriting for this episode. And let's see if we can name it after your uh, Simpsons taxonomy. So let's come up with a good, uh, a good episode subtitle. Right on. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 